Welcome to the December 22nd, 2022 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. Today, we'll discuss the effects of iron repletion on the quality of donated red blood cells and donor well-being. Learn more about the long-term outcomes of patients with relapsed refractory hairy cell leukemia after vemurafenib monotherapy, and discuss the use of off-the-self cryopreserved platelets for detecting heparin-induced thrombocytopenia and vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia. Our first blood article is entitled, A Randomized Trial of Blood Donor Iron Repletion on Red Cell Quality for Transfusion and Donor Cognition and Well-Being, by Eldad Hode, from Columbia University Medical Center in New York, and colleagues. Most of the blood supply in the United States is secured by donations from approximately 5 million regular donors. An estimated 35% of these donors will develop iron deficiency anemia, due to iron loss from repeated donations. A unit of whole blood contains 200 to 250 milligrams of iron. Without supplemental iron, dietary iron intake typically requires more than 170 days to replace this loss, significantly longer than the mandated minimum of 56 days between donations in the U.S. A recent randomized trial of more than 45,000 whole blood donors showed that increased donation frequency causes more symptoms, such as fatigue and decreased hemoglobin and serum ferritin levels. Therefore, current guidelines, drafted by the Association for the Advancement of Blood and Biotherapies, recommended that measures be adopted to identify and prevent iron deficiency in high-risk individuals. Two key questions regarding blood donation-induced iron deficiency are whether iron repletion of iron-deficient blood donors can improve the quality of donated RBCs and whether it can improve donor cognitive performance. The gold standard measure for RBC storage quality is the 51-chromium post-transfusion recovery study. According to FDA regulations, more than 75% of transfused 51-chromium labeled red blood cells must be detectable in circulation 24 hours post-transfusion. Several previous studies found that the post-transfusion recovery of RBCs obtained from iron-deficient donors was significantly reduced, but these products were not refrigerator-stored. In the current study, the authors report the results from a prospective randomized placebo-controlled trial called the Donor Iron Deficiency Study, or DIDS, which examined the effect of iron repletion on the transfusion quality of RBCs obtained from iron-deficient adult donors. In addition, laboratory markers of iron status and standardized assessments of cognitive function and quality of life were performed. The DIDS trial screened a total of 2,011 whole-blood donors between January 2017 and January 2021. 983 met the initial eligibility criteria and agreed to laboratory test screening for iron deficiency. Study subjects had to be between 18 to 75 years of age and healthy by self-report. Of these, 110 met the criteria for iron deficiency, and in all, 79 subjects were enrolled. Subjects donated an initial standard autologous leukoreduced whole blood unit, which was refrigerator-stored, for 40 days, 
followed by a 51-chromium post-transfusion recovery study. Subjects were then randomized within 30 days to receive either IV normal saline or iron repletion with 1 gram low molecular weight iron dextran. A second autologous blood donation was scheduled approximately five months later, followed by another 51-chromium RBC recovery study. The primary study outcome was the within-subject change in post-transfusion RBC recovery after randomization to either iron repletion or placebo. The NIH toolbox-derived, uncorrected standard cognition fluid composite score served as the primary outcome measure of an ancillary study examining the effect of iron repletion on cognitive function. Donors in the iron repletion group showed increased hemoglobin, ferritin, and hepcidin levels, and decreased protoporphyrin over time. In addition, donors who received iron repletion had higher hemoglobin concentrations compared to donors who received saline. However, when investigators compared the first and second autologous transfusions among all study subjects, they found that RBC storage quality was not significantly changed by iron repletion. Namely, the mean change in post-transfusion recovery was 1.6% and minus 0.4%, with and without iron, respectively. In addition, the assessment of the quality of life and cognitive function also did not reveal any significant differences between donors who received iron repletion and those who received saline. Based on these findings, study authors concluded that the current criteria for blood donation preserve RBC transfusion quality and protect adult donors from measurable effects of blood donation-induced iron deficiency on cognition. In an accompanying commentary, Roger Belazare and Sean Stowell from Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts, note that the findings by Hode and collaborators demonstrate that correcting iron deficiency in frequent blood donors does not significantly affect the overall quality of donated RBCs or donor cognitive function. However, it remains unclear if there are specific subsets of donors for whom iron repletion might be beneficial. For example, females, but not males, from the iron repletion arm showed a statistically significant increase in post-transfusion RBC recovery. Belazare and Stoll further point to an important limitation of the study, which excluded individuals 16 to 18 years old, who comprise more than 10% of the donors in the U.S. These young donors are already at higher risk of developing iron deficiency and may be particularly vulnerable to complications. For example, iron deficiency may impact ongoing neurologic development, with potential consequences developing years post-donation. In the future, the identification of individuals at the highest risk of morbidity due to iron deficiency could inform recommendations for iron repletion, eligible age range, and or donation frequency for donors. Next up, we'll discuss the article entitled Long-Term Outcomes in Patients with Relapsed or Refractory Hairy Cell Leukemia Treated with Vemurafenib Monotherapy by Shivani Honda from the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York and colleagues from multiple institutions. Hairy cell leukemia, or HCL, is a rare type of chronic lymphoid leukemia originating from a mature B lymphocyte and is characterized by a high prevalence of a BRAF V600E mutation. BRAF is a member of the RAF family serine threonine protein kinases and plays a role in regulating the MAP kinase ERK pathway, 
The BRAF mutation leads to increased stimulation of this cascade and uncontrolled cell division. Purine nucleoside analogs are currently the recommended first-line treatment for HCL, yielding an overall response rate of 90 to 100 percent and a complete response of 80 to 95 percent. However, approximately 30 to 40 percent of patients will experience recurrent disease. Moreover, repeated courses of purine-based therapies often result in decreased relapse-free survival rates and increased cumulative myelotoxicity and immunosuppression. The discovery of BRAF mutations as being almost universal in classical HCL and the importance of BRAF MAC-ERK signaling in disease pathogenesis have opened new therapeutic opportunities focused on targeting BRAF V600E. Inhibiting BRAF in vitro reverses the classical morphological and genetic features of the hairy cell and induces hairy cell death. In 2011, vemurafenib, a highly selective inhibitor of BRAF V600E, received approval for melanoma patients harboring the mutation, and subsequent studies have demonstrated the efficacy of this agent in hairy cell leukemia. In 2015, this group of authors reported the initial outcomes of 26 patients who received vemurafenib monotherapy in the scope of a Phase II clinical trial conducted in the U.S. in a cohort of patients with relapsed refractory HCL. In this trial, and in an unrelated Italian study, vemurafenib monotherapy induced an objective response rate of 96 to 100 percent and a complete response rate of 35 to 42 percent. At a median follow-up of 11.7 months, 29% of the patients experienced a relapse. In the current study, the authors report the long-term follow-up data of the entire cohort in the completed U.S. trial. The Phase II single-arm multicenter study enrolled a total of 36 patients from six different sites across the U.S. between January 2013 and June 2016. All patients tested positive for the BRAF V600E mutation and were either refractory or experienced relapse to initial treatment with a purine analog. Study patients received vemurafenib 960 mg orally twice daily for a minimum of three months, with the option to extend the treatment up to six months in case of residual disease. The study's primary objective was overall survival and relapse-free survival after initial and subsequent courses of vemurafenib. Secondary objectives included the assessment of the impact of clinical variables on overall and relapse-free survival, along with overall response rate and safety. Of 36 enrolled patients, 32 completed at least four weeks of therapy. Four patients stopped treatment in less than four weeks due to treatment-related side effects. The best overall response rate for the entire cohort was 86% with 33% of patients achieving complete responses and 53% partial responses. The median duration of vemurafenib treatment was 23.5 weeks. After a median follow-up of 40 months, 68% of patients who initially responded to vemurafenib experienced a relapse, with a median relapse-free survival of 19 months. No significant difference was found in the relapse-free survival of patients who were complete versus partial responders. Furthermore, there was no significant association between relapse-free survival and any of the studied factors, including age, sex, number of prior lines of therapy, time since diagnosis to trial enrollment, history of splenectomy, or type of response to treatment. 67% of relapsed patients were retreated with vemurafenib, and 86% achieved a complete hematologic response.
two patients acquired resistance to vemurafenib and were found to harbor new KRAS and CDKN2A mutations. Of the 12 patients who responded to retreatment with vemurafenib, 50% experienced another relapse, with a median relapse-free survival of 12.7 months. At four years, overall survival was 82%, with patients who relapsed within one year of initial treatment experiencing significantly shorter survival. A higher cumulative dose of vemurafenib did not lengthen the durability of response. On the contrary, a cumulative dose higher than 230,000 milligrams was associated with significantly increased odds of relapse compared to a lower cumulative dose of less than 150,000 milligrams. All adverse events in the retreatment cohort were grade 1 to 2, except for one case of a grade 3 rash and one grade 3 fever with pneumonia. Based on these findings, the authors concluded that vemurafenib is a safe and effective option for patients with relapsed refractory hairy cell leukemia. In an accompanying commentary, Claire Dearden, from the Royal Marsden Hospital in Sutton, in the United Kingdom, notes that the follow-up study by Handa and collaborators confirms the high overall response rate of 86% reported previously for this group of patients with relapsed refractory hairy cell leukemia. The fact that about two-thirds of patients relapsed after vemurafenib monotherapy demonstrates that although relapse is frequent, retreatment with vemurafenib is possible in most cases. However, the duration of remissions has been reported to be shorter with each subsequent relapse. The safety profile of vemurafenib was good, with no evidence of cumulative toxicity on retreatment. Dearden further notes that patients with poor responses and short remissions merit further investigation. Emerging knowledge about poor prognostic features, such as IGHV4-34 rearrangements, TP53 mutations, and unmutated IGHV genes may help identify these patients earlier and allow for a more personalized treatment strategy. In addition, Dearden is optimistic that sequencing data may identify newly acquired mutations, which predict therapeutic resistance. She concludes that the focus of future studies should be on optimizing dosing schedules and developing feasible combination regimens to deliver deeper and more durable remissions in hairy cell leukemia, as well as on overcoming the mechanisms of disease resistance. In the final segment of today's podcast, we will discuss the report entitled Off-the-Shelf Cryopreserved Platelets for the Detection of HIT and VITT Antibodies by Adam Kenak from Mayo Clinic and colleagues. Heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, or HIT, and vaccine-induced immune thrombotic thrombocytopenia, or VITT, are prothrombotic syndromes characterized by antibodies to platelet factor 4, or PF4. Currently, antigen-based ELISAs are used to initially diagnose HIT and VITT, but these assays, while sensitive, are highly nonspecific. More accurate functional assays are used to confirm the diagnosis. These include the serotonin release assay, PF4-dependent P-selectin expression assay, and heparin-induced platelet activation assay, and rely on the use of fresh donor blood and require more complex techniques and reagents. In addition, they are typically only available in specialized reference laboratories. Consequently, patients often experience a delay in a definitive diagnosis of HIT, which may lead to exposure to unnecessary treatment with expensive anticoagulants and excessive bleeding risk. 
Therefore, there is a critical unmet need to develop an effective in vitro diagnostic test that uses activatable platelets coupled with a technically simple assay to accurately detect HIT in the near-patient hospital environment. In the current study, the authors developed an assay that uses PF4-treated cryopreserved platelets to accurately detect HIT in the ELISA assay format. The authors were able to significantly extend platelet viability using cryopreservation under controlled freezing rates. These platelets maintain their ability to be activatable after long periods of storage. They also developed a simple functional assay endpoint using these long-term cryopreserved platelets by measuring the release of the platelet alpha-granule protein, thrombospondin-1, or TSP-1. To test this approach, 34 and 29 serum samples from patients with suspected HIT were evaluated in the PF4 thrombospondin-1 release assay and the heparin thrombospondin-1 release assay. Blood donors were healthy individuals with blood group O. In addition, four VITT patient samples were available in adequate volumes and included in the study. The authors initially evaluated the ability of refrigerated platelets to support the detection of HIT antibodies using PF4-treated platelets. Compared to platelets stored at room temperature for two days, the one-week-old refrigerated platelets demonstrated unacceptably high platelet activation. The authors then tested the possibility of using cryopreserved platelets for the detection of platelet-activating HIT antibodies. Platelet cryopreservation was optimized by freezing platelets at controlled cooling rates to preserve activatability. Cryopreserved platelets were then treated with PF4 or heparin and tested for their ability to get activated by HIT and VITT antibodies in the TSP1 release assay. The findings revealed that HIT patient samples induced significantly higher TSP1 release using both PF4-treated and heparin-treated cryopreserved platelets relative to the samples from patients suspected of HIT but who lacked platelet-activating antibodies. This latter group included several patients that tested strongly positive in the PF4 polyanion ELISA assays. In particular, the authors were able to demonstrate that the ratio of sample TSP1 to that induced by a normal control serum can be used as a diagnostic tool. If the ratio exceeds 2, the patient has HIT. If the ratio is close to 1, the patient does not have HIT. Importantly, the ratio should be high with therapeutic heparin, on the order of 0.5 units per mil, and low at high heparin on the order of 100 units per mil. To assess whether cryopreserved platelets can detect HIT antibodies over a longer term, the TSP1 release assay was repeated on a subset of seven platelet lots stored at minus 80 degrees centigrade for at least four weeks. The findings demonstrated that preserved platelets remained capable of activation and degranulation over this period. Moreover, four tested VITT patient samples activated the PF4-treated but not the heparin-treated cryopreserved platelets, which is in line with the recent observation that PF4-treated platelets are required for consistent detection of VITT. In an accompanying commentary, Stephen McKenzie from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, notes that Kenak and colleagues provide proof of concept for a clever new approach to definitively diagnose HIT using cryopreserved platelets in an ELISA-based platelet activation assay. They present a clear vision for a test that uses an off-the-shelf reagent, cryopreserved platelets, 
in a readily performed ELISA assay to generate accurate, timely, and locally available HIT testing. For this vision to become broadly applicable, McKenzie notes that several issues must be addressed. First, the inter-individual variability in healthy donor platelet responses should be minimized using pooled platelets or pedigreed donors. Second, the control serum source and preparation should be better defined. Third, it should be examined whether the coating of ELISA plates, as required by the current test, will influence lab practice and throughput. And fourth, future studies should assess whether heparin can replace currently used recombinant human PF4. Finally, McKenzie emphasizes that true protocol validation and standardization will require coded patient samples to be distributed among different reference labs, as well as independent validation of assay results. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode of Blood Podcast. Thank you for listening.